Turn with me to the table of contents, or you should have a handout there next to you that uh, gives you a few reasons why we should get excited about Christmas. What I'm going to do today is um, give you an overview. And so we uh, went through in Compass Systematic Theology, and this is the big book, Systematic Theology by Wayne Grudem. And for, for going through our version of that, I gave the gentleman in Compass kind of an overview. It's Systematic Theology in six sheets. And so that's what we're going to do today is we're going to go through the 39 books of the Old Testament. I originally called it 39 Reasons to Get Excited About Christmas or 39 Reasons You Should Believe in Jesus. I had a big, long Puritan title. My wife said, keep it simple, stupid. She didn't say that. She just said, she said, one of them is good, honey. And so 39 ways God has spoken about his son. And we'll look at that in just a minute, but you should see a picture of all the scriptures up there in kind of a periodic table. Some people learn visually, some people learn through notes. And so we're just trying to show you uh, a big picture of the scripture and as it relates to Christmas. And so why these 66 books? Why put uh, so much time and effort into preaching, teaching, counseling from, memorizing, discipling, reading through 66 books. It's called the Doctrine of Canonicity. Why these 66? And I read this week probably the most succinct reason for our belief in the Scriptures. You want to know what it is? Here it is. Why do we believe in these 66 books? For two reasons. Because Jesus affirmed the Old Testament and because Jesus authorized the New Testament. What do you mean by affirmed? Throughout the Gospels, seven times, more than that, but I put them into seven categories from this article, he affirmed the Old Testament in its entirety. And he talked about um, from the beginning, Genesis, to the end in Malachi, in that Matthew 5 language, the entirety of the Old Testament. He talked about its reliability. He talked about its accuracy, its sufficiency. When he was walking on the road to Emmaus, they said, we had thought you were going to come a certain way. And he said, are you slow, so slow of heart to believe? I had to suffer. And he opened up the scriptures and he showed them the sufficiency of the text for them. And then he talked about its inerrancy, its infallibility, and ultimately its authority. That if you have the Old Testament, you have words from God, but he didn't stop there. Not once in his life or the apostles' life did he ever uh, affirm the Apocrypha. Uh, it's an edifying document, but it's not an authoritative document. And so the authoritative document that he authorized through the apostles was the New Testament. You could read very specifically in John 14 and John 16, Jesus saying, I'm going away, but I will, through the Holy Spirit, recall to you all truths that you will give to men and women. And so that is why, ultimately, we hold to these 66 books. And we could go on another day at another time, and we could walk through, maybe in Sunday school, why we, show, we see that the original do, uh, documents, no, there are no original documents of anything around, and everything is a copy, but if you place the copies that we have of our original documents, the Old Testament, the New Testament, you place them against any ancient document, they outdo them five to one. It's unbelievable. Um, and so we could do that, but I think the easiest way to say it is because Jesus said so. Amen? If he affirms something, if he affirms it, I'm going to affirm it. If he authorizes it, I'm going to live by it. Amen? 
So what you have in front of you are 39 ways God has spoken about his son. Where did I get that God has spoken about his son? I got it from Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. It says, long ago, at many times and in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. In fact, you can go all the way back and you can see that Abraham was a prophet in Genesis 20. You read that. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. And so we're going to start in Genesis. And today we're going to work our way all the way through Malachi. We sang about 10,000 reasons. I'm just giving you 39 reasons why there was a first advent. And some people stronger and braver than I have attempted to do all 66 books in one sermon. We're going to break it up over two weeks. You get 39 reasons this week, and then you get 27 next week. And so just follow along with me on your handout. If you want to take notes in your table of contents, go for it. But what I'm going to do, buckle up, is we're going page one through about halfway, or a little more than halfway because the Old Testament's longer than the New. So we begin in Genesis. That we, we see in Hebrews 2 there that he created the world, Jesus, through whom he created the world, Jesus. Jesus is a co-creator with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But what I wanted to point out to you is that he is the seed of woman in 315. And so I'm not going to have all these verses up here. I'm just going to pick a few. Otherwise, we would be here all day. But I want to walk you through how you can see Jesus in every book of the Bible. And so he is the seed of woman, that God created the world in chapter 1. Uh, he gives you, gives you that the, the seven days, light water land, light water land, then he rested. He gives you a different account, a complementary account in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, uh, man sins against God, and immediately God gives the gospel that through a woman, one would come and crush Satan. And that is in 3.15. The fulfillment of that, you see, I'm going to either give you a New Testament cross-reference or a fulfillment. It's because not everything you see in the Old Testament comes one-to-one in the New Testament. Sometimes when the New Testament writers use an Old Testament, it's just a vehicle of expression, or they're giving you the significance of the entire passage, not necessarily a word-by-word commentary. We cannot, we cannot look at the Old Testament simplistically and says, said it here, says it here, it must match as some sort of um, um, simplistic approach to the text. And so what you see in Galatians 4 or 5, when the fullness of time had come, time began when God created the world, and when the fullness of time had come through Genesis all the way through Malachi, and in that intertestamental period, right at the perfect time, God sent forth his son. And in Genesis 3.15, it says, she will bear a son, and he was born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem us from the law. And that redemption came because he became the Passover lamb. In 1221 of Exodus, uh, Moses says, select a Passover lamb. It has to be perfect, and you're going to kill that because you're going to then put the blood on your doors, and the angel of death will pass over you. And in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it, it literally says, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Before the world began, God selected him to be the one who would die for your and I's sins. And then the third reason, Leviticus. Jesus is the great high priest, and he's the greater atonement. He is the great high priest. We saw that today in Sunday school, Hebrews 4.14. He is better than all the priests that came before him. 
and he is the better atonement. Leviticus 17, 11 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. And Jesus came and we read about that, that through his blood, we have a clean conscience in Hebrews 9, 14. I was thinking about that this week. Long before, you notice sometimes, like you see Hebrews 2, 1, 1 and 2 up there, we put verses up here or we put things to help. Some people are visual. Long before we had visual aids like what you see up there, Leviticus was real life visual theology. That it was the way they set up the tabernacle, the way they set up the sacrifices, people could see that you were entering into and you must have a sacrifice if you want to be in fellowship with a holy God. And so in Numbers, the fourth reason, the people went away uh, and they wandered and they were complaining and they were in the wilderness and at one time there was there was a plague that breaks out against the people. And so Moses made a bronze serpent, put it up on a pole, and the people didn't have to do anything but to believe and look. And if they looked upon what was on the pole, they were healed. People often don't make this connection, but the most famous verse in the Bible is connected to that passage in 21.9, that in John 3:15 and 16, it says, And as Moses looked upon the serpent, so, and then you get the greatest verse that you have always heard, God sent forth his son. All right. And so the idea behind that is this is Jesus who would come and he would be put on a pole. And we, we don't do anything, but we look to the cross. Galatians 3.13 talks about him becoming a curse for us, that God would take this cursed uh, snake and people through the cursed snake, the people would come healed because Jesus became a curse for you and me. Fifth reason in Deuteronomy, Moses says it, there will be a prophet like me, and I love what he says in Deuteronomy 18, 15, listen to him. Whatever he says, follow. And so Jesus comes, it's quoted verbatim in Acts 3, 22. A prophet came like Moses, and that is Jesus. And then you see in Joshua, the sixth book of the Bible, your sixth reason, there is this unfailing word. Look at these two verses in in Joshua 23, and he's getting ready to go die, and he says, now I'm about to go to the way of all the earth. And you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that no, not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass for you. Not one of them has failed. And the greater word and the greater promise is not one thing in the Old Testament has failed. Jesus came as the word of God. The word was with God. And he came and he dwelt among us and in with him was grace and truth. There is no failing word with the Bible. You can read every piece of it and you can trust it. Seventh reason, the book of Judges, that in that book you have this cycle of sin. The people would sin, they would cry out to God. People would sin, they would cry out to God. God would send a deliverer and the land, that, that judge would deliver them and the land would have rest. So be it, then they would sin again, and you see that cycle go on and on. And it leaves you at the end of that book longing for something, and you're longing for the righteous judge, Jesus Christ, who would come, and as Revelation 19, 11 says, he is faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges. That book is dark, and it leaves you wanting more, and so you get number eight, Ruth right after the book of Judges, in the days when the judges judged. And it gives you this wonderful story, probably my favorite story in the Bible, because it covers everything. You have the sovereignty of God, you have the sinfulness of man, and you get this allusion through the lineage of David, this 
this person who would come in the line of David. You get biblical manhood, you get biblical womanhood. It's just a wonderful story. And in that, Naomi says, we have a redeemer, a kinsman redeemer, a close relative. And in Hebrews 2.14, it says he became like his brothers and sisters. He was a close relative, not exactly like us. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he came as a human being that he may redeem us. Number nine in 1 Samuel, he is the greater servant. It says in 1 Samuel 2.26 that Samuel was at the temple. He was growing in stature and in favor with God and with man. And it's the exact same verse in Luke 2.52 where the young Jesus was growing in stature and favor with God and with man. And he would go on to say in Mark 10.45, I did not come to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom for many that he was the greater servant. In number 10 in 2 Samuel, he was the greater David. That David was given a promise. David was a man of war. He was a man after God's own heart. He wanted to build God a house. And God said, no, 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 I'll build you a house. And your son shall sit on my throne forever. And that points to the greater David in Jesus. Matthew 21, 9, when they say, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In 11 through 14, I've just put them all together. 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles. It talks about the King of Kings. You read through those books. We've been doing it in our men's study on Tuesday mornings. And you walk through those books and it leaves you longing for something more. Every now and then, every 10th king, you get one who did well, but then his life may have ended well. But it points to the King of Kings in Matthew 2, 2, where it says he has been born King of the Jews. Not that he would become king and if he qualified, he was born king. Number 15, in Ezra, he is the greater teacher, that the good hand of God was on Ezra, that he studied the law, he did it, and he taught it to Israel. And Jesus came in chapter 2 when he was young, he was in the temple, he was learning, he was listening, he was asking questions. And then he went in 2445, he was on the road teaching. Did you know that in the Testament, the, the main title for Jesus in his actions is a teacher. He's never called a preacher, not once, though he gives the greatest sermon ever, more on that in a minute. But he's called the teacher. Teaching was his life. Therefore, he ends and says, go make disciples, teaching them to obey. That if we're going to follow Jesus, we're to be teachers at different levels and at different, different times. We're all to be teaching those around us about the good news of Jesus. Number 16, you get Nehemiah, that, that Jesus is the greater builder. Nehemiah rebuilt the wall. It was a symbol of a city and a nation. And you see in Ephesians 2 and Matthew 16, 18, that not, Jesus wasn't just building a city and a nation. He was building the unstoppable church. And he didn't need a wall. He was actually tearing down walls. That there are only really two races on earth. There are those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and those who don't. Does that mean we... We don't see races. No, what that means is when he, he brought the two together, Gentile and Jew, Ephesians 2.22, in one new man. He was the cornerstone of a new building. Number 17, in Esther, he is a greater intercessor. 4.16, uh, Esther goes in. She risks her life. She had no clue what was going to happen. She said, if I perish, I perish. And Jesus, it says in 1 Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man. Jesus came as the greater intercessor. He never risked his life. He resolved to die. He knew what was going to happen when he left heaven, and he 
considered equality with God not something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He humbled himself, came in the form of a man. He went and died, even death on a cross, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. He never once, don't, if you read it in Wild at Heart or any other corny book like that, Jesus Christ never risked a thing, ever. He knew what he was doing. He didn't go, I don't know, God. He knew exactly what he was doing. And so he, Hebrews 7.25, daily intercedes for us. He is praying for you and I right now. Satan comes to accuse, and he, put, he stiff arms. And he says, no, that is mine. That is my child. That is my, they're an heir with me. That is God's child. And so that, my friends, first 17 books, those are the, the law and the history. And now we move into the Jesus of poetry. The living redeemer, that Jesus is whom Job said he looked to and he says, I know that my redeemer lives and I will see him when he stands on that last day. And Hebrews 1.3 says he is at the right hand of God waiting until God says, let's do this. In the Psalms, I, you, there's so many things you could have chosen in the Psalms. I just chose the classic. He is the good shepherd. He leads, provides, and he protects his people. And get this, beloved He'll even lead you through the valley of the shadow of death. He's a good shepherd. And so in John 10, he said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep, and the sheep know him. In Proverbs, there's a lot of ways you could take this, but he is the wisdom of God. In Matthew 12, 34, it says, something greater than Solomon is here. The Queen of Sheba came to see the wisdom of Solomon. It says, something greater than Solomon is here. In Ecclesiastes, the book is bookended by two comments that this is the preacher and he gave a sermon on the paradigm of life. And if you go to Matthew 5 through 7, you get the greatest sermon by the greatest pastor who ever lived. He tells you the be attitudes, the law attitudes, your life attitudes, or actually your religious attitudes, your life attitudes. And he tells you there's only one way to walk and it's down the narrow road. And he says, join me. He's the greatest preacher who preached the greatest sermon ever. And then there's the Song of Solomon, number 22. He's the glorious husband of a spiritual bride. And you can read that right there in Ephesians 5.25. Gentlemen, if you're here and you're married, um, your game has just been upped, if you didn't think about it. But you are to present that woman as Jesus Christ is going to present his church. It is a high calling. Let us pause and reflect on what we're called to do as men who are leading a bride, clean and washed by the water of the word, just like Jesus Christ. And so that is the Jesus of poetry, and now we move into the last 17 books of the Old Testament, the Jesus of prophecy of what Ben had read before in Isaiah 53. Uh, really, we could have, we, we could, maybe we'll do this next year. We'll just spend, I don't know, 10, 12 weeks just walking through the book of Isaiah and how it Every, almost every other chapter you can say, that's Jesus and Christmas. Isaiah 7.14, which is exactly cross-referenced in Matthew 1.23. A virgin shall bear a son. There is a near and far fulfillment. So in Isaiah 7, it, it, he talks about this. It's fulfilled in Isaiah 8 with a cool name, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. But he failed, and it leaves you for that one to come. And I, Matthew 1.23 says, this is Emmanuel, God with us. I could have gone to to uh, Isaiah 9, we, we sang about it. Here's the son 
A son will be born to us. The government will rest on his shoulders. And that's how you have to interpret those four names. Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Those all relate to Jesus. Almighty God and and Everlasting Father. That isn't God the Father. In context, it's talking about the Son. So this, we can't bifurcate this and say, Oh, Jesus is a wonderful counselor. He comes to me and I lay on my, my, my couch and he counsels me. That's not what it's talking about. The, the government shall rest on his shoulders. So he is a master strategist. He knew that he could take 12 men and that the world would be turned upside down by them. He is almighty God. He is God the Son and he is all powerful. He is an everlasting father that he cares for his people. So this strategy and the power that he carries, he does it with a sense of compassion and he is the prince of peace that he will usher in a new kingdom and he will rise and sit on the throne. Amen. And then you get the suffering servant. If there is ever a passage of scripture more comforting that God could do something 7 800 years before and then match it up with what happened That is it. You could walk back through what Ben read before our service and you can go, oh my, and it's quoted multiple times in the New Testament. Of all the Old Testament texts, this is the most, in Isaiah, you get the most one-to-one fulfillment. He did come. He was chastised by men. And he was buried between two men. And so it it, it just, it's almost, that's why when some people read it, they're like, nah, that can't be true. Here, here's, here's an unbelieving heart. I read Isaiah. That looks so much like Jesus in the New Testament. That can't be true. I know what they did. Silly people. <laughs> they must, we must late date Isaiah. Obviously, somebody wrote this closer to time. No. Eight, seven to eight hundred years before. Wow. And it's, it's to a T what happened to our Savior. Then you get Jeremiah. This Jeremiah, this is your 24th reason. He is the new covenant fulfillment that it was promised there. I will make a new covenant. And as Paul reflects on it in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, he looks back and he says, this is the covenant in his blood. And then in Lamentations, you see Isaiah, not Isaiah, Jeremiah weeping over. He's looking back at Jerusalem that's just been conquered. And he weeps. And you see Jesus in Matthew 23. Look at Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem. And he laments over that same city. In Ezekiel, this is interesting, the son of man, Ezekiel uses this term 93 of the 95 times it's used in the major prophets and many of it used in the whole Bible. It's to show that there would come a Messiah in human form from God. And you see a verse up here, Matthew 26, 64, that just puts it all together. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you, now you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds of heaven, almost verbatim of Ezekiel and Daniel. He'll say, you guys have desired a Messiah, one to come, you'll see him. He's the Son of Man. He's one who came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He is the Son of God, and he's coming. And then you get Daniel, the friend in the furnace. Uh, In 325, you see this fourth person in there and people have also often alluded to who is that it is jesus he says in matthew 28 20 i am with you always even to the end of the age he may not get you out of trouble but he will go with you through trouble and that's why i show you daniel 3 16 through 18 
probably three of my favorite verses in the Bible because of what they allude to. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Tell me, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, will you bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar? We're not even going to answer that. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. God has the ability. And he is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and he will deliver us out of your hand. He has the ability and they have a certainty, O king. But if not, he will ultimately deliver us. But if he chooses not to deliver us right now, understand this, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We're not going to do it. I'll go burn before I give up on God. And they went, and how cool was that? They were entered in. They entered in in straitjackets. They weren't getting out. And they come in. And all of a sudden, it's like the straitjackets fall off. Nothing's singed, and there's Jesus. He is with them always, and he's with you. He's with me. He may not remove us from the trial, but he will go with us through the trial. And those, my friends, are the major prophets. And now we enter into the 12 minor prophets. Number 28, Hosea. He is the faithful husband. God told Hosea, go take a woman of the night, a woman of harlotry. And there's big debates on was she a harlot before or did she become a harlot? And it's not. The point is God told him to go do that because it was a picture of a bigger, um, a more faithful husband that Jesus would come and he would take the church. God would take Israel, Jesus would take the church. We've been unfaithful, and if we're honest, if we're honest in our walk with God and our holiness and our pursuit of God, it is weak and we need help. But there is a faithful husband, and Revelation says there's a marriage supper of the Lamb, and like Gomer, we just need to repent and go back. He'll never leave. In Joel, he is the name upon all who will call, Joel 2.32. You see that in Acts 4.13. There is no other name on which someone will be saved. No other name on earth which someone would be saved. Like I said earlier in Philippians, all will bow, every knee, and they will exalt the name of Jesus. If you've been paying attention to the news, I am so sorry, but the Catholic Church missed it. Jews still need to repent and believe in Jesus. There is no other name. That's what Paul says in Romans. My heart's desire is for them. These are my people. This is my nation. To them were given the promises, but they pursue God with zeal, but not from faith. They need Jesus. So we don't write. We don't sign as the Pope. Ah, you know, Everybody else needs to believe in Jesus, but the Jews, because they share the same Old Testament, they don't have to. Not true. There's one name upon which all shall be called. And then in Amos, you get this roaring lion. In 3.8, the lion roared, who will not fear? Parallel text, the Lord God has spoken. Who cannot but prophesy? The roaring lion, that Jesus is the lion of Judah. He's a roaring lion. And here, God has spoken. And it made me think of a a Spurgeon quote, when it comes to the word of God declaring 
salvation. The word of God is like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion. All you have to do is let the lion loose and the lion will defend itself. So in our in all our sharing and all our apologetics, I love apologetics and I love to talk about the logic and, and the outworkings of the world, but never fear saying, will you turn with me to the word of God and let me read you something because unleash it, it will do its work. And so Jesus, that roaring lion, we see him in Revelation 5, he is the lion of Judah. In, in Amos also, he is the um, burden bearer. That darkness came upon the earth, and you see it played out in Mark 15, 3. In Obadiah, he is the conquering king. The book actually ends, and it says, And this kingdom shall be the Lord's. You see in right there, Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Jesus is the conquering king. I don't care who's in power. I don't care what kind of um, crazy people are out there trying to take over the world. There is one person who will rule, and he will rule with his church. Number 32, Jonah. Jesus is the greater missionary. Jonah was reluctant. God said, go to Nineveh. If you're looking at a map, go to Nineveh. What did Jonah do? Jonah went down to Joppa, got down into a boat, and he went down as far as he could go. He was reluctant. He went the opposite direction, and he ended up in the belly of a fish. Jesus is the greater missionary. Matthew 12 says, something greater than Jonah is here. John 20, 21 says, as the Father has sent me, so send I you. He wasn't reluctant. He was resolved. He wasn't disobedient. He obeyed, and he went into the belly of earth as a greater sign of the one who would die in our place and rise again. In Micah, this is the greatest birthplace of the greatest person who ever lived. What a great verse. We could do an entire series on this verse. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are, who are too little among the clans of Judah, a place of weakness, from you shall come forth for me. Here's one who's coming. Who's coming for, who is to be the ruler in Israel, who's coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. You mean to tell me, Jesus, this whole plan was worked out long before the world was created? Yes. His coming forth is from old. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They're just, they have a perfect plan, and they're playing it out. And so in Matthew 2, 6, you see that birthplace in, in Bethlehem. It's quoted again in John 7, 42. Number 34, you see Nahum. Here's the one at the feet of good news. And you see in Ephesians 16, the exact wording. Uh, not only do you need the, the blessed breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, but you need feet shod and ready and prepared to carry the gospel. And so he is the feet of the good news. And then Habakkuk is the joyful prophet. Look at these words. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the star, stalls. And I wish the yet was bolded so you don't miss it. Yet, though all of that, Here's Habakkuk saying, God, there's evil going on 
in the in the world. What are you going to do about it? Well, I'm going to bring the Chaldeans, and they're going to they're going to attack you. Well, wait, wait. God wasn't talking about us. He said, "You write this so that you may run, and you go tell the people I'm coming." And it took Habakkuk to go from doubting to devotion, and he ends this book with this: "Whatever happens, Lord." I will rejoice in you. And so Jesus is that joyful prophet who's rejoicing even in the, in the hard times. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. And notice the end of Habakkuk, it was to be sung to the choir master with stringed instruments. Garrett, get on that. Just Habakkuk 1 through 3, come up with a song. We'll sing it. And so Jesus goes, you see in Hebrews 2, for the joy set before him. He knew what was coming. He despised the shame and he endured the cross. He knew hard times were coming. He said, but I get joy in the Lord. And then in Zephaniah, he is the restorer of life. Revelation 21, 5 said he is making all things new. You think you're at a place where maybe you've messed up and you've got to earn favor with God? Trust me, you need not do anything but repent and run to the cross and he will make things new. He will restore, just going back a book into, or actually a couple books into Joel, he will restore the years the locusts have taken away. Whether it's your relationship uh, with your spouse and your girlfriend, whether it's a relationship between you and your child, or co-worker, a neighbor, you're thinking, this one's beyond repair. He is the restorer of life, and he's making all things new. Number 37, Haggai, he is the greater glory. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet what, once more in a little while, I'll shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. What's he going to do? Verse 7. Here's what he says. Not on there. That's why you have a Bible. No problem. Haggai. It's a minor prophet. Haggai comes right before Zechariah, and it says, And I will shake the nations so that the treasures of the nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. He'll fill this house with glory. Here they are complaining in their day. This, this was nothing like Solomon's. We're, there's no way this could be as great. He said, I'll fill this house with glory. And Jesus walked through that temple and he even said in John 2, 19 and 21, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. They were confused. It took us 42 years to build this temple. He was talking of the temple of his body. He is the greater glory. The temple is just a shadow. Jesus came as the fulfillment of that. And Zechariah, he is the pierced son. They will look upon him whom they pierced. And in John 19, it literally says, and he looks upon the one whom he pierced. And he says, my God, this is... Son of God. He was pierced for our transgressions, as we read earlier. And number 39, Malachi. Jesus is the greater cousin. In Malachi 4, 5, and 6, it says this. Is that not on there either? You're going to have to talk to whoever puts these slides together. That'd be me. Behold, 
I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That one would come, and that language is used as we finish the Old Testament and you turn into the New That same exact language is used in Luke 16 and 17. And he will turn many of the children to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And so here's Jesus, John the Baptist. They get his birth announcement. Then you get Jesus' birth announcement. You see the forerunner of Jesus come, and here comes Jesus right into the New Testament on Christmas Day. And so I'll end with a little wisdom from the Jesus Storybook Bible. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on earth and under the sea. He wrote his message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror to show us what he is like, to help us know him, to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims. And God put it into words, too, and wrote it in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you shouldn't, shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you. And what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is a book of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, as you'll soon find out. Most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes at all. They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and run away, and at times they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about the story is this. It's true. There are a lot of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children has and comes to rescue them. And it takes the whole Bible to tell this story. At the center of the story, there's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name.